that lets you save the look here. True form life. Green look on I'm hoping that people get whatever they can out of this book. Not and and it gives me an opportunity to bring the humanity back to these two people who lost it and just became numbers. Welcome to Exploring Mind and Body with Drew Tadia. Drew is an expert in nutrition, fitness, lifestyle, and more. And he wants to help you live a healthier, longer, and more active life. Now here's your host, Drew Tadia. Welcome to another edition of Nationally Syndicated Exploring Mind and Body. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for tuning in and being a part of our True Form Life community. We're coming at you with a brand new show. We appreciate whether you're listening on terrestrial radio across the country or as a podcast around the world. We certainly wouldn't be here without you. So stick around. We got all that coming up. This is Exploring Mind and Body. Naturally improve your lifestyle one show at a time with your host, Drew Tadia. Welcome to another edition of Nationally Syndicated Exploring Mind and Body. We're super excited to have a brand new guest on the show. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Max. Thank you for having me. Wonderful to be here. It is our pleasure. I'm interested to hear more about you, who you are, what you do. Let's give you a chance to talk with the audience. Sure. Uh, I write. Uh, I'm getting older. Uh, It's my birthday uh, next week. Uh, I'll be 73. I've been writing for a good part of my career, and most recently, what I've been talking about is a book that I I wrote called Painful Joy, a Holocaust family memoir, and it's uh, about discovering who my parents were. Uh, They were Holocaust survivors, and I knew very little about them, and spent five years researching and writing the book, which came out and uh, talking about what it means to be a survivor. Where did your inspiration come? Because I'd imagine there are some people in your position that didn't decide to write a book. Yeah, well, it took me a long time to to be inspired. Uh, I mostly avoided the topic because our childhood with our parents was was quite painful in many ways, and uh, I didn't want to have anything to do with it. Then... My grandson, uh, a few years ago, was about eight, and I had told him about my mother a bit, not much about my father, and I had mentioned the word survivor. And I think it caught his ear, and uh, he was interested. And so he asked me, well, if, uh, if they were survivors, then maybe you were a survivor, then maybe my dad was a survivor, and maybe I can be a survivor. And that'll make me strong. What do you think? And I said, I haven't a clue. (laughs) And and I spent five years trying to figure out surviving, uh, figuring out who they were, how their survival affected me and my family, and uh, sort of the legacy of survival, and what does that mean for people, and what does it mean uh, for society? 
Very interesting. Is there anything that stands out to you that was most surprising when you started to dig, dig in there deeper? Everything was surprising. Everything, everything. I, uh, just from a personal perspective, I discovered that my parents actually loved each other at one point. Uh, it never seemed that way growing up. They fought constantly. Uh, I learned about their first families. My father had a, a wife and two little girls. Uh, I learned their names. When I learned their names, I couldn't stop crying. Uh, I learned about my mother's life, and the, I learned that the stories she told us, which weren't many, but she did tell it to us over and over again, were actually not true. And I, I discovered the the need for people to write their stories and start to believe their stories for sometimes for them to survive. What what stories did your mom tell you? My mother told us that uh, she was wealthy, that she her first husband uh, had a dance studio, and when after they married, she helped him in the studio, and then the Nazis came. This was in Poland, in uh, Krakow, and they took all their money away, but but she had been living in, a, in an apartment with five rooms and a maid, and actually, none of that was true. That was all in her mind. It was her way to sort of figure out who she might have wanted to be, but not who she was. She she took wash in to have enough money to eat. Her first husband made luggage. He worked in a store. Um, so it, it was it was shocking to hear that, actually, the first time when when I saw the papers and saw what she wrote down about who she really was. And how, how did that affect you? Or how did that make you feel when you were like... Well, I, at first, uh, I, I just couldn't believe it. Then I started to understand, uh, because I, I had a story, a parallel story, uh, quite different uh, than my father told about about his life. And he only spoke about his life actually once, his, his former life once in all the time I knew him when I was 20 years old. And he told me about his first wife and two children and the last time he saw them. The problem with the story was that he was already in a concentration camp 300 miles away when that story would have happened. So again, I think he was trying to deal with the shame and guilt of surviving when, when his wife and children didn't. Mm. So I, I came to understand that. First, I was sort of disappointed in why do they tell us all this stuff? Uh, but then I came to understand what people do. And what do they do? They, they create a world for themselves if they can't easily live in the world that is their reality. And I think they did that during, they, they were both survivors of the concentration camps, and I think they did that uh, partially to survive. And then they did that because they never stopped being survivors. And I think the the trick is is to learn how to transition from being a survivor to being somebody who can enjoy life. And I think sometimes when my sister and I, who's old, she's older than me. Uh, when we grew up, uh, we mimicked some of their survival instincts. 
and and modes of behavior and probably not in a good way you so is any of your story true you're just making it up <laughs> this story right <laughs> well i could be making it up it, you know i mean i thought my book was non-fiction but you never know <laughs> what was your relationship like with your parents well, we basically took care of them. I, I think uh, the the term is child parents uh, because they really uh, they were suffering from PTSD for most of their lives, all of their lives, I would guess. After the war, uh, they met after the war uh, in a in a camp in Sweden, and that's where my sister and I were born. We came to the U.S. in 1952, uh, and uh, my sister and I had to sort of take care of them. Uh, we had to wake them up when they had nightmares. We had to try to have them avoid watching anything about war, and especially about the Second World War, uh, because it would just bring back memories that were too horrible. Uh, so so it was a, a difficult... The only thing I, I knew when I was young is that this was not normal. It's not what I saw on television, and it's not what I saw going to, to school. So, so is it, yeah. You... you you wouldn't be able to, were you able to talk to your friends about this or it was just you and your sister? Uh, uh, it was just me and my sister. I, I was, you know, I mean, honestly, I was somewhat ashamed. Uh, we live, we were very poor. Uh, not that my friends were that much wealthier than we were, but they seemed to be living a normal life. They ate white bread <laughs> with bologna. Uh, <laughs> I, I would have treasured the white bread. Uh, uh, they, they seem to be normal, but probably no one is really normal or whatever normal is, but, uh, but they seemed not to have the screaming and yelling and fighting and sadness that I think pervaded in our household. And my mother, while she didn't talk about much about her earlier life outside of the concentration camps, did talk quite a lot about the concentration camps. So we were brought up. I, you know, I, I would say our bedtime stories were concentration camp stories. So it, it, it had an impact. Wow. Okay. So, so much going on here. How did you deal with that at a young age when you're hearing about concentration camps? At a, at a young age, I went into a fantasy world. I, uh, when I was seven or eight, we, we lived in Coney Island. I don't know if you, you know sure. you know about Coney Island, but we lived there. But we weren't allowed to go on any rides because our, our parents were afraid of us. They were probably the original helicopter parents, if there ever were any. Uh, and so uh, I would uh, decide that what I wanted to be was not there. And when I was seven or eight, I would actually go on the subway by myself into the city I would dress up as though I were an adult, even though I was this tiny little kid. I'm still now just a tiny little old man. But when I was a tiny little kid, I would carry a manila envelope because I saw people going into the city with briefcases. We didn't have a briefcase. So I had a manila envelope and I would put on a little bow tie and I would go on the subway. I would go underneath the turnstile, you know, I was seven or eight. And I would take the subway into the city and ride up and down elevators. I, I remember going into the AP building in Rockefeller Center and it, it going down to the sub basement. And I was frightened beyond, you know, the doors opened and there were these like garbage cans and weird things. 
But that's what I would do. And I would do it because my father would be asleep and my mother and sister would be out shopping or looking at clothes that they couldn't afford to buy. So what did, what did that, that offered a, a release for you? That o- yeah, that offered an escape. That offered a way of thinking about my life as though I were someone else. Uh, I, I would fantasize, and I think a lot of kids fantasize that they're Superman or Superboy or whatever, and I did that too. And the, the, the difference was I, I kept my superpowers to myself, I guess because I was afraid that if I actually tried to use them, it wouldn't work. So I kept them to myself, and I said to myself, I will use them only when my life is in danger. And fortunately, I never had to use them. So what kind of stories would they tell you? Oh, oh I mean, my, my mother again. Uh, she would tell us about her camp experiences. So she would tell us about, and I don't know if you've seen or, or if your listeners have seen Schindler's List, sure. Spielberg's film. Uh, my mother's story was essentially Schindler's List. If, if, and, and I only discovered that when I saw Schindler's List and then remembered what she had told us. Uh, she was in the Krakow ghetto, as, and the, the difference was she wasn't saved by Oscar Schindler. But otherwise, there she would go to Plaschau, which was the first camp after the Krakow ghetto was liquidated. And the commander of a camp, a guy named Eamon Gett, uh, would stand on his terrace and randomly shoot people in, in the, shoot inmates in the camp. And my mother would tell us about how she would be standing there. And she'd be talking to a woman next to her, and suddenly the woman would fall down with a bullet in her head. And she told us these stories. She would tell us stories about Joseph Mengele, who was the the doctor who did experiments on twins. But he also selected people in Auschwitz to go to the left or to the right, to live or to die. My mother was in Auschwitz, and she would tell us about him. And, and what it was like, and then about saving her do- her sister. The only person in both their families who actually survived were my parents, and her and my mother had one sister, and she actually saved her uh, in, at Auschwitz. So uh, those were the kinds of stories about starving, about being beaten, all of that. <laughs> It's hard to imagine at that age. So that, that started when you were seven or earlier? Or? Uh, that, that started from, it's my first memories. Wow. My first memories are of her talking to us. Uh, she was a tiny little lady. She walked around, <laughs> I hate to say this, with a big serrated knife all the time. Just Sometimes, out of fear? or uh, she, she did it. I don't know. She was sort of a... A show person. I think she could have been okay in some strange movies, uh, but uh, she she did it uh, because she was always cutting things. But also, she would sometimes say that her life was meaningless, and my father wasn't making enough money, and she was going to kill herself. So she had this knife around all the time. So uh, <laughs> I, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, you know, read read painful joy, and 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 you, and you'll try to. You, you'll you'll understand the pain, and I hope at some point, uh, once you get to know these two people, or the readers get to know them through through painful joy, you actually get to understand them, and then appreciate them, and then feel 
empathy for them and for people like them who are lost, who have lost everything, and, and not just in camps, but all kinds of other ways. And, and, and that's why, at the end of the day, I wanted to write the book, because first it was going to just be me trying to figure out who they were and then who I was. And then it became more of a, of a, a broader understanding of what people go through in their lives, the kinds of things they do, uh, that, and, and then what can people do to understand how hate can do all, a lot of this and, and how you can recognize that and what in your own life you can try to do about that. Is there any, do you have a specific audience? Is anyone that you wrote that book for? In particular, initially, I wrote it for my my uh, small family. My uh, my sister has has four boys. They they uh, have have wives and children. So uh, my own grandchildren, I wrote it for. Initially, I wrote it to to tell our grandson Jacob what the story is about survival and what happened to them. And and uh, they actually accompanied us to Israel because we had discovered that my father's first wife had a niece living in Israel. Uh, and so we went to meet her. And uh, so it, it, it was just one thing after another. We, uh, it, it became a bigger story than I thought it could ever be. And the audience is anybody who wants to know the truth of what happened to people at that time, uh, I know there are all kinds of Holocaust deniers and all kinds of other stuff going on. And this is this is a true story that I took a long time to try to figure out and try to write in a way that I think in some ways was is certainly heartbreaking, but I think in certain ways it's heartwarming. And I want people to feel something when they're done with the book. Did you feel a sense of relief? Once it was completed, I I I was I was delighted <laughs> that it was over, uh, though I keep talking about it, uh, so it's never over. And 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 I I was so surprised about so many things. And I think uh, again, I started by saying I was surprised that they loved each other. And I found this love letter from my father uh, that he wrote in 1946. Uh, he had met my mother three days before. And he writes about how he fell in love with her. He writes to a lawyer who is trying, he's trying to help him emigrate to the United States. And he wants to know, could, could he help this woman, even if they don't get married, because maybe they'll even find their first families. They never found their first families. They got married six months later. Uh, my sister then was born. I was born a few years after that. And, and it was, it, it was the, I think of the great of all the experience, it was the greatest experience that I had is is seeing that at some point they were happy. At some point they were in love. At some point they saw a life ahead for them. And that made me feel very good. What do you think changed that? Uh, real life, nightmares, memories. I mean, I think they were sort of on a honeymoon. Uh if the 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 book's cover is the two of them on a motorcycle, but all dressed up. Uh, and and this is right after they had met. Uh, and survivors often, Holocaust survivors often 
met other Holocaust survivors. There weren't that many. Uh, and they married because those people, those each, they could understand what they went through. They could understand the craziness. They could un they could appreciate it in a way that I think someone who who didn't actually go through three or four years of this horror could even begin to understand. Um, so that 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 was the best part of the book, and I think uh, people who who read it will see that. You started out by telling the story about your eight year old grandson asking you a question. Yeah, what was the question? Uh, the question was, uh, what does it mean to be a survivor, and am I going to be a survivor? Because I, I want to be strong, and the survivor had to be strong. And did you figure out that answer? The answer is the survivor does have to be strong. I mean, I think in their case, uh, what I came to understand is that, uh, and this was through testimony of people who had seen them in the camps, and had seen my father, for example, being beaten quite a lot. Uh, and uh, and I think the way they survived was by living each moment as this, as if it were their last, but not thinking about it being their last. So on the one hand, they had hope, a very fragile hope, because everybody around them was being murdered. Uh, and on the other hand, they they couldn't think about tomorrow, and they couldn't think about yesterday. So they really, I mean, if anybody could live in the moment, just surviving, just trying to eat, trying to steal food or or whatever it was, that's what they did. And 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 I think that was one of the most positive aspects. The other was that they were resilient. They they persevered throughout it all. And that's that's a survivor instinct that I think I adopted. I think perseverance became, you know, uh, very important in my own life. I think of to to just plow ahead no matter what. Sometimes that was a stupid idea, but I did. For <laughs> to have those memories at such a young age instilled in your brain, how your right. parents. Like the struggles that your parents went through, right. did that offer? I, I feel like you, it could go either way. You could be a victim in life, or you could use that to give you strength. Did would, yeah. did, did that offer one of those I, for you? I I think it offered both of those. <laughs> I think uh, uh, at one point in my life, I was working for a guy for for ten years actually working for this guy who was a bully. It was. Uh, I called him a terrorist. I mean, he was, he was a bad guy, but, you know, a smart guy, and the company kept him on. And uh, one day we were at some meeting, a management meeting, and they had psychiatrists there, and you were supposed to present your problem, your work problem. I told him my work problem was this guy. And, uh, and he said, tell me more about your life. So I, you know, did the 10-minute version of my life, which always includes my parents in its own way, as it should. Uh, and and then he just said to me, he said, you got to get out of here. <laughs> you have to quit. What you're doing is you're being a survivor. Uh, your parents could, had to be survivors. They couldn't escape. You have an option. Uh, frankly, I didn't listen to him. It was too hard. I had two kids. 
I was getting paid well, and I didn't do it. And he said to me, if you keep doing this, one day you'll be an old man, and you'll look back in your life and you'll say, it's surviving enough. And uh, I, you know, I, I think perhaps it is enough, <laughs> because if you don't survive, there is nothing left. Uh, but you have to be much more mindful, and you have to be willing to take more risks. So what happened? Did you end up quitting, or you stuck with you stuck with no, them? No, for... I stuck with it, but but actually, as it turned out, they you know, I think they heard our pleas and all this other stuff. So he left. Uh, a better boss came in who promoted me and gave me the department and all that other stuff. So it worked out okay. So. You know, you never know about about things you do and whether they're going to work out or not. But but in retrospect, I I it would have been good for me, and I think as an example to my children, to have to have gone away and tried something else. One of the last questions I'm going to ask you here. I'm interested to know. Uh, a couple more famous that, at least from what I know, you mentioned Schindler's List. We have uh, It's a Wonderful Life, uh, Man's Search for Meaning. Any comparisons there besides the obvious from your work and those? I, I think uh, I think in, in all of them, the, the people that make it are the people who are willing to take risks, uh, and at the same time, have a, a, a very good uh, sense of what's right and what's wrong, uh, and and at least try to uphold that within themselves, even if the rest of the world looks at them and they say they're crazy or you have to do it this way, you have to do it. I think both my parents, in their own ways, uh, were very strong-willed uh, and just plowed ahead and said, this is the way I'm going to live my life, whether that was in fantasy, as my mother did, or as my father did, as as a really nice, sweet guy who just left the past behind and looked forward for the first time, I think, once he had us, because I think uh, it was too painful to look back. All right, Max, it is time to wrap things up here. Is there anything that we missed that you wanted to mention? Uh, painful joy. I think it's, uh, the, re the reason why it's called painful joy is because I found out that, uh, that death, uh, can change love, uh, and make it joyous, even through the pain. Uh, and it's, uh, you can get it on Amazon. You can visit my website, maxfriedman.net, uh, and learn more. There are interesting stories there that I didn't even begin to talk about. So, it, it's uh, it's a good life, and I and I and I I'm happy that I had the opportunity to talk about it. Is there anything else that you do in in promotion or of yourself? Is it just the book that you want to mention? Uh, yeah, I, I, I yeah I I try to talk on podcasts. I try to talk in libraries. Uh, I stop people on the street. Uh, anything <laughs> at all. Uh, I go back to Coney Island and say, really, this is where I went, and, you know, but uh, uh, mostly I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that, that people get whatever they can out of this book, not, and, and it gives me an opportunity 
to bring the humanity back to these two people who lost it and just became numbers. All right, Max, that was fantastic. Thank you so much. Super interesting. I'm, I'm very interested in history and I've read and watched. I'm actually interested, very interested in checking your book out. So I'll definitely head over to your website, but I appreciate right. you taking the time to uh, write the book and share your story with us today. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it a lot. All right, that's going to wrap things up for this edition of Exploring Mind and Body. Once again, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for tuning in and being a part of our True Form Life community. You can always find us on facebook.com slash trueformlife. We post up there a couple times a day on our story. We're always trying to bring you more content around living a healthy lifestyle, whether that be nutrition, fitness, lifestyle, and more. We also have free challenges that we do at least once a month. So if you follow us along there, you'll be able to join maybe a plank challenge or a squat challenge, Tabata challenge whatever it may be we'd love to have you join us we're also on instagram.com slash drew tadia again we're posting up there a couple times a day along with our story all dedicated to keeping you fit and healthy and on track our main website is trueformlife.com if you want to check out some of our products some of our services or if you just want some great content from videos to blog posts and recipes and more we got all that at trueformlife.com. Once again, thank you so much for being here. That's it. That's all I got. I'm out of here. As always, I'm your host, Drew Tadia, in health and fitness for a better world. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Exploring Mind and Body with True Form Life's Drew Tadia, fitness expert. To find out more about the show, Drew Tadia, or to listen to past shows, visit exploringmindandbody.com.